So I'm Jim Giambalvo, Dean of the Michael G. Foster School of Business, and it's my pleasure and honor to welcome you to tonight's event. For those of you who may not be familiar with the Foster School, uh, we have about 1,200 undergraduates, 800 master's students, and about 100 PhD students. One of our most significant competitive advantages is we're in Seattle. Seattle is just a super economy. There's the iconic companies, Starbucks, Microsoft, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera. And the upshot is we're in this really vibrant economy and a period of very rapid growth. And while that creates tremendous opportunities, it also creates challenges around healthcare, education, transportation, and other areas. So I think it's tremendously important that we pause and, and think about what are those issues and what are the solutions to those. And I'm really proud that Jeff Shulman's been addressing them in his podcast. So Jeff is the Marion Ingersoll Professor of Marketing at Foster. He's also a senior editor at the journal Production and Operations Management, which is one of the most prestigious business journals. He's conducted over 100 interviews to find out how people are reacting to the city's growth, and his work speaks to the commitment of the Foster School to our community. Tonight, Jeff's leading a discussion on the topic with a distinguished panel, including Maggie Walker, John Connors, and John Creighton. And like you, I'm delighted they're participating, and I'm looking forward to insights into where we've been and where we're going. Thank you for coming, and let me now hand it over to the MC, Lauren Brohan. She's the Assistant Director at the Burke Center for Entrepreneurship at the Foster School. Thank you, Jim, and again, welcome, everyone. Um, as Jim mentioned, I am the assistant director uh, with the Burke Center for Entrepreneurship. I manage the Alaska Airlines Environmental Innovation Challenge, which is a really cool and awesome opportunity for student teams to work together to come up with an innovative solution to an environmental problem. I also um, get the joy um, to coordinate events like this. Um, as part of our month-long uh, series of events called October Entrepreneur Fest, excuse me, Fest. Um, and so this is one of a dozen events that we've been coordinating um, both on campus and um, here in downtown Seattle. And so we're really glad that you are all a part of it. Uh, the Burke Center for Entrepreneurship um, has served student entrepreneurs and what we refer to as the entrecurious um, since 1991. And through uh, its three competitions, including uh, the Environmental Innovation Challenge, the Health Innovation Challenge, and the Business Plan Competition, as well as an accelerator program. Each year, 600 plus students compete for more than $300,000 in prize money um, awarded by the Burke Center. And we plan to do a whole lot more. So if you are interested in some of the things I mentioned and you are starting to tap into your entrepreneurial, uh, I don't know, mindset, um, we have a Master of Science in Entrepreneurship uh, coming up. And uh, if you'd like to learn more, please see our center director, Connie Barasa-Shaw, over here. <laughs> 
as she would love to tell you more about this um, upcoming new program. So tonight we bring together people from business and beyond in hopes of inspiring people from diverse backgrounds to collaborate in building a brighter future for Seattle. And it's great to bring this conversation to the city. Thanks to our generous co-sponsor um, of this event, the Impact Hub, here we are. So I'd like to um, introduce Steve Johnson, the CEO of Impact Hub, um, to share a few words. Thank you very much. I will be very brief. I uh, wanted uh, just a minute to tell you who we are and also to explain why we're excited to be um, supporting uh, this event tonight. Uh, again, I'm Steve Johnson with Impact Hub. What is Impact Hub? At its core, we rent space. We rent space for events. We rent space for individual business owners and entrepreneurs, and we rent space for offices. But we're also a B Corporation with a social mission. The reason why we rent that space is we're creating a community of we're creating a community of people who are really dedicated to innovation and solving problems. But what what binds us? What are our core principles? Really, they boil down to the ethical application of technology and the ethical application of market forces. So can we use market forces, not traditional um, philanthropy to nonprofits, which is fine, but can we use market forces and technology to solve problems? So we're really your civic center for social innovation. Uh, we have many amazing people here. I want to acknowledge and point out um, the president of Social Venture Partners, or CEO, or executive director, all of the above, Lisa Nitza, who's in the back. She's one of our partners who, their headquarters are here. And why did we sponsor this event? Uh, when I look at, when we read about um, the things that you're thinking about, transportation, education, homelessness, environment, um, every single one of those topics, there are people here who are starting and growing businesses to solve those problems. So for the purpose of uh, elevating and supporting interaction and ideas, um, we think this is a great alignment. Uh, also, uh, with the professor here, uh, Shulman, um, being at the, uh, 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 I want to say Evans School, not the Foster School of Business. I know that's the government side. The Foster School of Business, we have a lot of your graduates who are graduates 20 years ago or recent graduates saying, I really believe in what I learned about and I want to apply it uh, in a different uh, non-traditional way. So thank you for being here. Thank you for allowing us to host and good luck to you all tonight. Enjoy. Thank you, Steve. And now I would like to introduce uh, Professor Jeff Shulman to the stage. Uh, Professor Shulman was curious about how growth is affecting businesses, residents, and city leaders. And to find out, he conducted in-depth interviews with everyone from a man in a bar to the mayor of Seattle, including CEOs and city council members, homeowners and homeless, artists and activists, and many more. The project culminated in the Seattle Growth Podcast, which was named Curb.com's list of podcasts that everyone in Seattle must listen to. So if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. Um, you're missing out. Um, it's also been featured on GeekWire, Cairo Radio, and Como News Radio. The Seattle Growth Podcast has had tens of thousands of listens since launching just in late summer. So we're delighted to be able to take part in this uh, next episode being recorded tonight. And, and with that, please join me in welcoming Professor Shulman. Professor Shulman. 
All right, welcome to the first ever taping of Seattle Growth Podcast before a live audience. Uh, so uh, it's great to be here at the Impact Hub in Seattle's uh, Pioneer Square. So please join me in thanking them for co-sponsoring this event. This event. Let us also thank the UW's Burke Center for Entrepreneurship for organizing this event and bringing us all together here tonight. There's some individuals who need to be thanked here. Of course, our MC is not just an MC, she's organized this event. Uh, so Lauren Brohan, and she's been supported by a great number of people, Kelsey Gray, Victor Balta, Charles Trillingham, Andrew Kruger, Mike Bosey, and our audio person in the back, uh, John Kybe. Uh, so thank them as well if you get a chance to see them. So let me ask you all a question. How many cranes did you see on your way here tonight? By a show of hands, who saw more than one? What about more than five? Anybody see more than ten? Wow. Seattle is growing rapidly. And the cranes are just the tip of the iceberg of the transformation underway in this city. And I started the Seattle Growth Podcast with a curiosity of how are my fellow community members responding and reacting to the changes around them. And it's easy to draw dividing lines among the interviewees that I met. But what I found most striking was the commonalities. And one particular commonality struck me most, that whether growth was perceived as the enemy or growth was perceived as the savior, uh, Community was paramount in the minds of almost everybody I talked to. And so we're brought here together. Uh, that's why we're brought here together, because uh, if we listen to our fellow community members, we can understand the challenges they face, and we could work together uh, to rise to those challenges and to build a mutually beneficial future. And uh, tonight, we continue the conversation of Seattle Growth Podcast with three distinguished panel members who have made immeasurable contributions to the city of Seattle and who will also play a major role in its future. But of course, it's about bringing the community together and so we will also hear from you, the audience. Now, now's a good time to remind you, we are taping a podcast episode. So if you choose to put the microphone in your hand, uh, you are giving us uh, the ability to use that in the podcast and any derivative works. Uh, so please keep that in mind. Um, but of course, again, we're bringing the community together. And with that, I don't want to hesitate to introducing uh, the members of this distinguished panel that we will hear from. So first off, I, uh, the first person I would like to welcome to the stage is uh, somebody, uh, a, a great civic leader, someone who Puget Sound Business Journal recently named to their list of women of influence. She uh, co-founded the Seattle Venture Partners, which resides up here in uh, the Impact Hub. And she has served in executive leadership roles of countless organizations uh, here in Seattle, which with causes raising from the environment, education, the waterfront, and many more. So please join me with a warm welcome to Maggie Walker.
All right. Uh, and so my next uh, panel member that I'd like to invite to the stage, he uh, was named to the Forbes Midas list of most successful uh, venture investors. He previously served as the chief financial officer of a, a small local company you might have heard of, uh, Microsoft. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, he is currently a managing partner at a successful venture capital firm in the area, Ignition Partners. So please welcome to the stage, John Connors. Uh, and last but not least, I would like to invite to the stage a uh, Port of Seattle commissioner, elected, to, uh, back, elected to, uh, by the voters of King County originally in 2006, and he is currently serving as the president of the Port of Seattle Commission, which has a multi-billion dollar impact on the region. Please join me in welcoming John Creighton. All right, so let's begin. I will start with, uh, I'd like to ask Maggie, um, as Seattle is changing, and there's a lot uh, of changes underway here, what would you like to preserve? So what do you hope, whether it's cultural, physical, or, or otherwise, what do you hope to preserve in Seattle going forward, and, and what are you doing to preserve it? What I've learned about this community over the last 25 years as I've worked in the nonprofit sector um, is that this has a unique character. So um, this place does have a unique character, and uh, it is a place that has a sort of a, an edginess, a rough edge, because it's always been a place that people came to to reinvent themselves. And it has this very interesting characteristic where every 20 or 30 years, the city actually does reinvent itself. And what I would like to see us do is, when we're reinventing ourselves in this particular cycle, is that we don't um, kill that particular edginess, that roughness, not become like every other glitzy city in the world, so that when you arrive in Seattle, you don't think, oh gosh, where am I? It has all the same stores, all the same you know, corporations, et cetera. So there's an edginess. Um, we're also a, an incredible uh, harbor. Uh, we have an incredible maritime history. We have an incredible labor history, a corporate history. We have all kinds of interesting contradictions and complexities, which I would like to, to preserve. And one of the places that I'm working on that is on the waterfront. Our viaduct has robbed us of our waterfront for you know since the 50s when it was built. And my job currently is to manage the process of removing it and creating a great public space along the waterfront that can be the community's great mixing chamber, our central park, the place where everybody comes together, and which keeps that lovely, democratic, um, edgy kind of crustiness about us where we rub up against each other and there's friction, but there's also love. Thank you. And we'll turn to you, John Connors, at the end. What would you like to preserve about Seattle? Well, the, I didn't grow up here, so I, I moved here in, in 1984 and then have the only other places I've lived in the last 30 years, I lived a year for work in Los Angeles and a year in Paris. So it does feel like home, but it isn't where I grew up. The thing that, the first thing I'd like to say is I think Seattle is too narrow a description of, of what's happening here, and I think it really should be the Puget Sound region. 
I think the most important thing to preserve is, is the diversity of the economy here and the fact that there have been for many, many years a broad range of good jobs for all types of families. Th this region is so fortunate to have you know, the technology companies we have, it's so fortunate to have some of the advanced retailers we have, but it's even more fortunate to have very large scale advanced manufacturers, Boeing, PACCAR, et cetera, because those jobs are, are fantastic working and middle income jobs. And the thing that I would really like to see prevented is not that, that this doesn't become like Northern California, where it's just high tech and super high wage jobs. Because if you look at what's happened to California, California has the worst income inequality in America. It has the most rich people, and it also has the most poor people. All those middle income jobs and middle income industries and manufacturing uh, jobs have moved out of California. So the, the, part of what the richness of this area has been you didn't live by somebody who was just in the same industry as you. Your kids grew up and they knew people from all sorts of different industries and those, those middle income, well-paid jobs with good benefits are critical to this, to this area and they're criti critical to the health of any community. And that would be the thing that I would like to see as a community preserved is all these incredible companies that provide great livings for, for middle income families. And are you doing anything to try to preserve that in the region? Uh, principally what I'm doing, I'm heavily, my wife and I are heavily involved in a lot of youth activities, but we're also involved in a, in a public policy institute that is free market oriented. And the, the truth in this country is, if you're a rich, powerful corporation, you don't need any help from a free market think tank. You pay lots of money to lobbyists and you have lots of clout at the city, state, and federal level. And We've seen a real concentration of powerful corporations in America the last 25 years, and it's gotten much, much worse the last decade. Who needs help are the small and middle-sized companies that don't have the clout, they don't have the ability to set up elaborate tax schemes overseas. They're the ones that are paying the highest tax rates, and they're the ones that are most impacted by regulation. And so really working hard to defend our manufacturing, our ports, our ag industries, our distribution industries, that's really critical, I think, to keeping this area unique and, and something that is, that is a great place to live for all citizens. The other thing that's fantastic here is how great the parks are. There's so many places people can go that are public parks, whether it's on the water or elsewhere, and that's also something I think that is really, really important is common areas, not just for the rich, but for those that aren't well-to-do. Now, John Creighton, your turn. Uh, what would you like to present? All right, well, I think John really stole my remarks here. <laughs> um, you know, with all this growth, it's tremendous, it's wonderful, but one thing that concerns me are the economic trends. Uh, you look at the numbers, and high-income jobs have really grown last 20 years. Low-income jobs have really grown last 20 years in the county, but it's that middle wage, that middle-class sector that has really been eroded. And um, you know, going forward, we have to make sure that we have a, you know, we maintain a diverse economy. And you know, from the port standpoint, I, I really think the port has a role in that because you look at some of the world-class 
industries, world-class sectors we have in the region, you know, tr trade and logistics, aerospace and defense, agriculture, as John mentioned, and an organization like the port, I really feel, can be the backbone or is the backbone to a lot of those key industries in Washington State. And, um, you know, when you look at, um, you know, a lot of policymakers talk about the old economy and the new economy, and is, isn't it wonderful we're moving towards this new, new clean economy? Well, I would argue that that's really an outdated paradigm because the two, the old economy and the new economy are so intertwined these days that you really can't differentiate. And I think we need an economic diversity here in the Seattle area to maintain our quality of life, maintain those good paying middle class jobs that we need uh, going forward so we don't become a San Francisco or whatnot. And, um, you know, you look at um, like the fishing industry, um, you know, that was one of the historic industries that Seattle was founded on. We're still the home to the North Pacific fishing fleet. It's some $30 billion a year business. And you look at some of these new fishing vessels coming online, you go up to the bridge, it's like Star Trek. You need a computer programmer on board these ships 24 seven. And you know, so the old economy industries have really adopted technology in order to, be, to compete, in order to become more efficient. And frankly, the new economy businesses need the old economy you know, as customers to su supply, you know, s sell to or you know, internet platforms like Amazon, how do they get their goods to market through the old economy freight system? So I really think I agree that we need to maintain a diverse economy as we grow, and we really need to focus on those middle class, middle wage jobs. All right, thank you everyone. Now I would like to turn to you, the audience. Does anybody here have something that they hope can be preserved about Seattle and want to share why? Yeah, I'm an advocate for the homeless. Now this is my main question. You're saying Seattle is growing, but our veterans that fought to make this country safe, free, and secure is dying. After fighting to make this country safe, free, and secure, and I'm devastated, so i like to know what are you doing for our females and males that's sleeping on the streets right today? And Black Lives Matters, and this is not the changes or the dream that Black Lives Matters can believe in. I want to know about the veteran. In honor of my father that served his country over two decades in the United States Air Force during the Korean War and Vietnam War. He died in vain because of the Federal Immigration and Nationality Act, Section 8 U.S.C. 1324, A in parentheses, 1 in parentheses, A in parentheses, alien. Okay, so we are going to get to the issue of homelessness. I think that is uh, an important conversation for us all to have. Uh, right now, we're going to discuss what do we want to preserve about Seattle and how do we, uh, how do we preserve it. But It's a main topic. Yes. It's not to the side. We're going to get to the challenges associated with growth that we hope to address and work together uh, in a collaborative way. Uh, so we will get to that in a moment. So thank you for for your your comment. Uh, did anybody else have something about Seattle that they would hope to preserve uh, before we get to the issue of social innovations that we could do here in Seattle? Uh, good evening. My name is Lawrence Roybal. I think what I find unique about Seattle is all the small businesses, whether they're coffee shops, retail stores, or artists. And 
they play a big impact and have a big role. A lot of those businesses are role models for, for young, young children, youth as they grow up and call those places or recall those places as they grow older. So what initiatives or steps are you willing to take or have public officials take to preserve those types of businesses? Uh, would anybody like to comment? Sure, if I could. Um, from the port standpoint, you know, we're what I call a business owned and operated for the public good. We're a public enterprise. We're a taxpayer-supported agency. And so I feel everyone across King County pays taxes in, into the port. Everyone needs to benefit. And so part of that is really working with communities across King County and making sure that we're supporting small businesses and our contracting in our retail and dining at the airport. We're reaching out to small business and giving small business an opportunity, uh, both you know, with respect to our vast contracting and also you know, the retail and dining opportunities at the airport, at the cruise terminal and whatnot. And um, frankly, it's been a challenge because the port is set up, you know, we're at heart, uh, we build major infrastructure. And so we deal with these big construction companies for the most part, and you know it's hard under the law for us to direct our contractors. Well, you have to deal with such and such small businesses, but we're looking at innovative ways that we can be more inclusive of small business because you know we'd love to see a small business that we support become the next Alaska Airlines, the next Horizon Airlines, become the next Holland America. I think that's really important, a really important part of the port's mission. So, uh, John? You know, it, I think that's just a, a fabulous question. And the, the, I don't know what, you know, anecdotal evidence or, or studies one can cite, but there's multiple. But there seems to have been a real decline in, in just basic economic literacy in America. And I don't know what the, the result of that is. I don't know if it's the, the, the change in, as, as we've gone to a global economy, as those winners become, the, the companies that win and the participants in those companies become fabulously wealthy in a way that was almost unimaginable 25, 30 years ago. But there, there's the notion by many people that somehow every single business makes a lot of money. And the fact of the matter is most small and mid-sized businesses don't make much money. And the, the other fact of the matter is that all evidence throughout every single uh, uh, study over time shows that the minimum wage destroys jobs. Most people that are in minimum wage are either part-time workers, it's a second job, or their early entrance in the workforce. And as long as the economy's growing, those people don't stay at that wage level for very long. I think that the challenge we have is because of globalization, it's created these outsized winners and the perception everybody makes crazy money that's in business, combined with the fact that we're, we're entering, the, right now we're entering a second decade of the worst growth in American history. So the last 10 years is the first time in US history, 200, nearly 240 years, that we haven't had at least one year of 3% growth. Now there could be all sorts of reasons you can cite, but the fact of the matter is, without growth, small and mid-sized businesses just aren't going to make much money. And if, if small businesses have very high wage costs and they have a lot of regulation, it's just very difficult for them to survive. 
The real casualties of that, though, are young people who learn their first skills in low-wage jobs. They learn how to show up on time. They learn how to do things they don't like doing. They, they learn to set goals and follow orders, and they learn that the world isn't fair, that you go to work and it isn't always fun. And, and that the, the, the fewer of those small business opportunities that exist, the, the, the worst impact is on lower income, lower skilled people. And so I think we really need a, a doubling of, of an effort on, on basic economic literacy. But most importantly, the country just desperately needs growth. The problems we have with debt, the problems we have with entitlements, the problems we have with the divisions in the country, each of those are made easier if the economy starts to grow. And we, we desperately need more of what this region is seeing all across the country. So um, what is missing often in these situations for particularly small business owners is capital. And one of the things that I don't think our social structure provides today is access to capital for the small um, and even medium-sized business owner. So one of the things that we are working on um, as part of our model for the waterfront is to think about how do you create systems where there are small amounts of capital for entrepreneurial people who are, have small businesses that would like a place that would give them enormous access to audience and customer that would allow them to build themselves out. Because the truth of the matter is people all want to bet on the next Microsoft. They all want to bet on the next big thing. And all the capital is flowing to those ventures. What we need to do is reallocate the capital. There's plenty of capital in this country, and it's sitting on the sidelines. We don't have a mechanism to reinvest in our small businesses anymore. And it's, it's a challenge. And I, um, I think all of us need to take responsibility. The way that I'm approaching it is by having nonprofit and public partnerships, which allow there to be capital created. But we're, we're doing it on too small a scale. We need to partner. I will tell you that I, I help invest in third world countries this, where we do this very, very, very successfully. And it, it pulls people up amazingly through, as John indicated, economic literacy, understanding how to run a business, how to grow a business, and also the access to capital. But that is actually a really important part of, particularly in a city that's incredibly expensive to operate in, it, it is something that I think has been left out of the equation. All right, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about what aspect of Seattle's economic and population growth are you most excited about? And I'll start with Maggie. Uh, great. So um, the thing that I'm most excited about is that Seattle has always been a place that has attracted a lot of influx from all over the place. And that has continued to happen. I think it's something like 70% of the people who live here now are not from here. And we have an enormous amount of diversity being created in our community, which I think is terrific. Um, this is creates a vitality, but it's something that we need to be able to embrace and manage. And um, it is, in fact, uh, the source, frankly, of a t vitality for America as a whole. And it, it is uh, an opportunity to learn, uh, to provoke, 
to create uh, new cultural awareness across the board, to understand other people's tastes and backgrounds. And that creates an enormous uh, energy. And the city and the, uh, the region needs to create places where that interaction can take place so that people aren't sort of ghettoized into their own community's place. And part of what I'm doing while I'm working on the waterfront is creating spaces that cultures can come together, can perform, can show their culture off to the rest of the city, et cetera. But this is the piece that every 30 years, as I said, Seattle gets an influx. It reinvents itself. It, it creates all kinds of new value and a new identity. And, and this is really important that we capture this and don't, you know, don't see ourselves as homogeneous just as a tech place or just as this. It's important to capture all of that diversity. Go to the John, who has the mic here. You know, there's just uh, there's just so many things to be enthused about, and you know, I don't. Sometimes I don't like to be in heavy traffic uh, because you know you're selfish. You don't want to waste time. On the other hand, I just stop and I go, look at all these people that have great jobs they're going to and from. A little bit of traffic is is not a negative. There's there's so many things to be excited about. You know, one of the most exciting things for me. I'm, I invest mostly in enterprise software because that's really all I know. Uh, I wouldn't know anything about a consumer product and uh, you know have no capability there. But as I was telling my wife and kids yesterday, when we got, all had a chance to get together for dinner, I'll, I'm involved in seven private companies now, and hopefully we win an eighth one that I'm really excited about. I'm trying not to bug this kid too much that how bad we want to invest in his company. But it's unbelievable, five of the eight companies that I'm invested in, the CEOs are immigrants from India. And I love working with Indian immigrants. And these folks came from nothing and have worked so hard first to, you know, to get to the US and get into Purdue or get into you know, a, a, a state, Iowa State or whatever school they could get in with nothing. And they work so hard and they're contributing so mightily. But I had my first visit to the Boeing Everett plant uh, just before Thanksgiving last year. And that was such a fantastic eye-opener to get a tour of that plant. 44,000 people work there in all different trades, building one of the world's most magnificent products ever created. And my, one of my sons works in Yakima in the hops industry. And we've now gotten to know the, that, that hops world a bit and how important it is with, with what John mentioned with the port, because 70% of the US hop production comes from, from the Yakima Valley. So there's so much to be excited about here, and there's such a diverse economy. AWS and, and Azure, Microsoft and Amazon, are the two most important companies in the enterprise computing space right now. In the world, the two most important, they're six miles apart, constantly fighting for, for each other's people or the best people in the world. We have some of the world's most advanced manufacturing companies here. We've got unbelievable retailers. You've got Amazon, Costco, Starbucks. You just go on and on. You look at what's happening in core research around healthcare and cancer in this area. You look at the agricultural industry. You look at the port. There's, there's almost unlimited potential and what's so fun about being here now is when I moved here, Seattle was, a, was an important regional city, but not even really an important 
US city. Then Microsoft happened. I never thought I'd see in my lifetime here a company that had the impact of Microsoft. But Amazon is, is going to have probably even a larger impact on the region than Microsoft had. And Seattle's now emerging as one of the world's most important cities. With the ethic and the type of community we have that Maggie's so uh, critically involved in, this can be a, the world's most important city, not only in, in an economic dimension, but also in how we deal with issues and making it livable for all types of people, regardless of their income level. It's a great challenge, but it, this probably has the ethos to pull that off. Commissioner, all right. Well, as a port commissioner, I will not surprisingly give a port-centric answer. I really, I'm excited. I really think we have the opportunity to solidify Seattle, solidify the region as a gateway to the world. And um, you look at our seaport, and I think the value proposition is pretty evident there in terms of being a gateway to get medical device and other manufactured goods out to the world, to get agricultural goods out to the world, as John mentioned, hops and cherries and what have you. Um, but, um, you know, we also have the airport, and um, the airport, um, you know, it's interesting because we're one of the few dual port authorities in the, in the United States, in fact, and most people focus on our seaport. Well, our airport actually uh, generates 70% of our jobs, 70% of our revenue, and the commission in 2011, it was our centennial, our 100th year anniversary, and we thought, okay, how can we set the stage for the next 25 years? And, you know, the port doesn't create jobs, it's our tenants who create jobs. So we thought, how can we work with our tenants to help create 100,000 new port-related jobs for our region on top of the 200,000 port-related jobs in the region already? So grow in the next 25 years our jobs by 50%. And um, you look at the airport and it's sort of a virtuous cycle because the more connectivity Seattle has to the rest of the world, the more connectivity businesses here have to their customers and suppliers, um, the more businesses want to locate here in the region. And the more businesses locate here in the region, the more our airlines want to start new routes to different parts of the world. And every new international route, every route to a new international destination creates $75 million of economic impact to our region. And so one of the goals we set in 2011 was to work with our airline tenants to double the number of international flights and destinations out of SeaTac. And we've been the fastest growing large airport uh, for the last two years and probably will be for a third year as well. And, um, you know, in large part to Delta Airlines, but other like Shaman Airlines from China just opened up a route to Seattle. On the cargo side, Airbridge Cargo, a Russian cargo provider, just opened a new cargo route to, to Europe. And so in terms of doubling international flights and destinations, we're halfway there um, in five years. And we felt that we were setting a, an achievable but a real stretch goal. And then on the cargo side, the air cargo side, we set the goal to triple air cargo out of SeaTac in the next 25 years. And we felt that that was a real challenging goal and that we would have ups and downs over the years. Last five years, it's been nothing but up. So uh, we really have an opportunity to solidify Seattle as a gateway to the world. And can you believe how clean our airport is? That's the thing that I, I 
fly in and out of there all the time. I'm, it's so impressive that you come to this beautiful city and it has a nice airport. It doesn't look like a third world country and it's clean. Well, thank you. We have some challenges with regard to that. And um, frankly, we've, you know, we try to be prudent in our investments because any investment we make, if we build out a new terminal, it's the airlines. Our airline customers need to pay for that, ultimately, you know, over time, paying off the bonding. Um, so Alaska Airlines, our hometown air carrier that between Alaska and Horizon represent 55% of the flights out of SeaTac, you know, they've always been scrappy at competing with these big le legacy carriers. So we've been very prudent in building out the airport. But now with this tremendous growth, we're sort of behind the eight ball. And we, the commission has just approved $2 billion in new capital expenditures. And that's just looking out, say, five, 10 years. In the next 20 years, we're going to grow from 44 million passengers a year to 66 million passengers a year. And that will likely take building a whole new terminal. So it seems that there's a, a bit of enthusiasm for growth uh, here on the panel. Uh, let's talk some challenges, and let's kind of break them down a little bit. And I first want to start with challenges that the, the just give me the one biggest challenge that you see that growth is creating uh, that you think might be able to be addressed by the private sector. So maybe somebody in this room here might come up with an innovation that could address uh, a challenge that you see is really uh, on the forefront here. Uh, let's start with John Connors, and then we'll work our way. You, the, well, that's a, it's a really good question. What, I, I'm not sure many hard problems that exist in any society, ours or any other, can be solved just by the private or just by the public sector. It just, they're, they're not solved because they're hard. And hard problems take a solution that uh, usually takes a lot of compromise. Probably the, the thing that, that is uh, first, you know, the, there'd be two things that'd be first and foremost in, in my mind, uh, would be the, just the cost of living here for, for uh, non-rich people. If you're rich, you can live in a, in a place that's convenient and you can afford lots of things to, to help with your, with your hassle. You can have a car service. You can hire people to clean your house. You, you, do, you can hire people to take care of your yard. You can, you, know, you, you can do all sorts of things to make your life easier, but mostly you can live in a good place that has, is proximate to where you want to live and socialize. The real challenge I think we're, we're starting to see now that is uh, eerily reminiscent of, of what California faced years ago is just the cost of housing and the transportation distances for those that aren't wealthy is becoming a big problem. And the, the private sector, the public sector, I think the first thing is to design the transportation and the, and the housing regulations to help low and middle income people. And that doesn't mean build a bunch of multi-unit housing in the middle of Seattle, because most families simply don't want to raise their kids in the middle of Seattle and send their kids to Seattle public schools. They, that's why they live in the suburbs. And so I think the, the big thing is figuring out what can we do as a state at the city, county, state level to make it cheaper to build housing and what are the growth policies to not make it so darn expensive to do developments? Because the, the, the further, the closer in you are, the worse the regulations and then therefore the higher the cost which means people have to live farther and farther away, and they have to commute a long ways. 
Uh, secondly, we just have to build more roads. There's certain areas that, that need more roads. This area needs an arterial ring like most cities have so that you can get around the, the urban core without driving through the middle of it, whether that's for trucks and other things, but we need more roads and we need more, uh, more sensible housing for the region so that housing doesn't cost so much to build so that more people can afford it. That's almost, I know that's anathema to what many central uh, people believe, people that live in the city believe, but it's the reality for any big metropolitan area is most people don't live in the city. What it, of the roughly four million people that live in the Puget Sound region, what, 560,000 of them live in Seattle? What do you think Seattle's population is gonna be in 10 years? 600,000? What do you think this region's gonna be? Probably, it'll probably be five million. So there'll be 900 to 950,000 people will move into this area, but only a fraction of them will live in Seattle. So design solutions for the majority, not for a tiny minority. Maggie? So I would agree that there are no solutions that are either public or private. I think one of the, one of the opportunities here in Seattle is for us to create some models of how the public, nonprofit, and private sectors can collaborate to solve some of these problems of income inequality, of the whole issue of a transportation system that we are going to try to build out now, but we're behind the curve. Um, but, the, but the solution to a lot of these issues need the expertise that all these sectors can bring to the table. And I think it's important for us to be willing to be open-minded and innovative with all of this because I think this is actually a failing of our system right now is that we are in silos and we, we ignore each other's sort of um, best practices and what we can bring to the table in all the different sectors. So the challenge I think is actually bringing that all together and bringing it to bear and being willing to look hard in the mirror at ourselves and figure out what we're doing wrong be willing to ask that question and be willing to ask ourselves, if we're not succeeding in something, do we have the will to stop doing it and start doing something else? And that's a hard thing to do, um, particularly if there's a whole industry built up around solving the problem a certain way. Um, I think uh, one of the things that I work hard to do is to create these public-private partnerships to solve problems so that our regressive tax system which is responsible for a bunch of stuff that ha is going on, um, is that we, we tax the wrong people and we don't have the capital built into the system to solve some of the problems. So the solution at this point is simply to go out and try to bring to bear philanthropy. We're raising a huge amount of money at the University of Washington, which a number of you must be aware of, in order to keep it a great university. And that's because the state support keeps shrinking. Um, and that is a public-private partnership. Um, these are the things we need to do in order to succeed, but we have to be open-minded, but we also have to be clear-headed about how to do this. Commissioner Creighton. All right. Well, I would completely agree with my uh, fellow panelists and uh, to focus on the homeless issue that this gentleman brought up earlier, and I'll, if I could, Professor, he'll steal one of your ideas. Yeah. You look at the homeless issue, the mayor is doing some good things in terms of the, you know, moving forward the affordable housing le levy, and it's great that passed, and 
you know, putting together this uh, affordable housing committee that had some good recommendations come out of it. And the city council is grappling now with homeless encampment legislation. But you look at the issue, and years ago, they developed this 10-year plan to end homelessness. And we've only made a dent in the issue. In fact, it's grown much larger. And so we need new thinking. How can we work with the private sector to bring to bear private sector solutions to this issue and you know just really think creatively and you know Amazon is doing a wonderful thing with what is it the 6th Avenue motel that they the yeah. property they bought now using it as transitional housing i mean we have corporations doing some great things but you know still that's just making a dent in the issue how do we you know does the public sector who's failed to this point work with the private sector on new creative ideas to try to address these real, you know, just intransigent issues that we're, we face. And um, so, yeah, I would focus on that. You know, I came here when you gave me the questions, I was sort of focusing on higher level issues and I was going to respond that um, I think that region needs to brand itself better because you look at we have all these wonderful global brands Microsoft Amazon Starbucks Boeing but you go outside of Seattle you go internationally and people don't necessarily recognize them as Seattle companies and um, you know you go to China you say you're from Seattle they bring up sleepless in Seattle which is what a 20 year old movie um, I think you know there's an effort afoot right now, Challenge Seattle, where the private sector is coming together to see, okay, how can we really brand our region to better market it to the world and bring global, global corporations to our neck of the woods? So, I mean, that's sort of a nice-to-have problem, a high-level problem, but I think you know, dealing with some of these nitty-gritty issues like homelessness are really going to make or break the quality of life of our city. What do you mean so, by nitty-gritty? Well, it's a problem that, you know, is core to our community that we need to address. And, you know, so far we've failed at addressing it, so I really think we need new creative ideas. So let's talk homelessness uh, a little bit further before we, we get to other challenges. Uh, so it, it's obviously a complex issue, and we see there's, there's many reasons that, that people might find themselves homeless. One, one challenge is that if you have an eviction notice or bad credit or a low paying job, in this market, it's really hard to find somebody who is willing to rent uh, to you. So is there a sustainable business in creating a place that has an innovative payment solution or an innovative way that you could uh, help those people who don't look good on paper in terms of their credit history and eviction history, uh, but that you could help them and make a sustainable business? Any thoughts on that? You know, I, I don't know. That's, um, you know, one of the best things about being invited tonight to this. And I did, I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name when you introduced your. Arnold and Michael Fuller, Arnold. I'm an advocate for homeless veterans and families, racism, low income houses, saved by children and our elders. I've traveled across the United States under bridges and abandoned buildings, speaking to our homeless, advocating for our homeless with Congress and local government. So it, it, one of the greatest takeaways for me f from tonight is, hey, I, I hadn't, that wasn't a top of mind priority in it to me was homelessness, and that's a great reason to be here. Uh, and there's no simple solution, otherwise it would have been determined. 
Uh, but I do think if the wealthy and successful companies and people in the area continue to innovate on the problem, it can be made uh, less severe. One thing that is, is real obvious from not only the, this region, but every region of the U.S., is the lack of available mental health facilities seems to be a, a, a constant when you look at, at homelessness problems. And regardless of, of nationality, regardless of income level, that, that impact of, of mental health is, is a real big crisis. And it'll take a public-private partnership, but it's fantastic you're here tonight. And I think, um, I mean, you really need to bring social services to bear because there are those homeless that have mental issues or substance abuse issues, but there's also a lot of homeless out there that if you, I mean, the data, the studies show that if you just provide homeless and particularly homeless families with stability, if you get a roof over their heads, that that gives them the foundation to be able to go out there and get jobs and get back on their feet and really be able to start being self-sustaining. So, um, you know, I know that I met with a city council member the other day that showed me some um, brochures about what the private sector is doing in terms of modular housing. And, you know, can we look at solutions like that to bring cheap housing to bear just to get roofs over the head for the, you know, our huge homeless population as opposed to having them, you know, live in, you know, greenbelt areas that aren't safe, aren't secure, but provide some stability and security for them, I think that will go a long ways to helping homeless reintegrate back into getting good jobs and being self-sustaining. That's a good thought you said, because I have been bringing this up when Hillary Clinton was the first lady about our homeless veteran and non-veteran mental illness. And you know, bipolar disorder, brain cancer, breast cancer, brain damage, diabetes disorder, lung cancer, mental illness, neurological disorder, orthopedic disorder, PTSD disorder, not getting the proper medical attention right today. And our females and males are at war. Now I got brain damage. I was in a coma four months and it took me two years to learn how to eat, talk, and walk again. That don't make sense. Well, thank you very much for, for having your voice heard tonight. Uh, I want to give somebody else a chance to have their voice heard tonight. Would anybody like to share what they view as a, a major challenge at the front of their minds that they would like to see either private or I guess we're learning that public-private uh, collaboration is the way to go here? Thank you, Thomas Osborne. I've been here for about 15 years, and I do have kids in the middle of the city and love it and never want to go to the suburbs, and personally hope we never get an interstate ring because Dallas hopefully won't be Seattle. Um, so one thing I'd like to say is I haven't heard anybody talk about why. Talked a lot about how, but why do we want growth? What is good about growth? And can I say one more thing? We are rich. We are so so blessed in this country and in this city. And isn't it better to give away than to take some more? What about giving to Tacoma? What about giving to Bellingham? What about giving to Eastern Washington? What about giving to India? What about giving to Africa? Why do we have to have the next big corporate headquarters? Why can't somebody else have it? That'll solve a lot of problems real quick. And if we really cared about homelessness, we'd solve it. We don't care. Uh, so does anybody want to answer why Seattle? 
You know, that's a very good question and a question I grapple with. I mean, for example, the growth projected at the airport. Um, you know, the neighborhoods around the airport that have 747s flying 500 feet above their houses don't particularly appreciate or approve of growth at the airport. And, you know, they ask, well, why does SeaTac Airport have to handle all the growth? Why can't we look up north to someplace like Payne Field or, you know, look at dredging up one of the ideas of the past, like a bullet train over to Moses Lake? And I understand that, although, you know, we live in a free country that has the freedom of movement, and projections show that we'll have a million more people moving to the region in the next 20 years. And, you know, unless we change our constitution, there's really nothing we can do to address that. And so... It's you, a cost-benefit analysis. You control part of the cost. You can make it tighter, harder work for the airport. It's so all of a sudden, Bellingham becomes more attractive. Somewhere in south of Tacoma becomes more attractive. So what I'm asking you is to ask yourself in your leadership role to ask why. Why is it a good idea to have growth? Not just for growth's sake, but why? You know, and that's a... Again, it's a good question, and I've really grappled with, well, how it's really hard to figure out how to control growth in a free society. Um, you know, you look at the people moving to Seattle, um, you know, if we become an, another San Francisco, we'll have the very wealthy displacing, you know, the middle class here, and that's an issue that I really care about. How do we maintain a thriving middle class in our city? And um, in my role as a port commissioner, I think the port's role is to help preserve and help grow those good paying middle class jobs and that economic diversity for our region. But um, again, you know, projections show that the traffic at the airport will grow from 44 million passengers a year, which was last year, to 66 million passengers a year by 2035. And we've invested billions of dollars in infrastructure at SeaTac and the airlines you know, right now would prefer that we use and leverage that infrastructure as opposed to, you know, shunting growth up to Payne Field or elsewhere. Um, but again, I mean, I, you raise a very important point and a point that I, I grapple with every day. Anybody else want to comment before yeah, I, I... I think it's um, the, there, there's no guarantee this area will continue to thrive and succeed. There, it, is it probable? Yeah, it's probable. And if you look at most uh, successful metropolitan areas economically, it usually has been built around a, a series of early companies that were successful that then have multiple companies uh, created by their employees. You know, if you look at the Silicon Valley, great example. If you look at some of the early companies in the Dallas Metroplex, like, like Texas Instruments, the, the, the uh, ecosystem effect of those early successful companies is quite large over time and it's highly likely that we're seeing the same thing now from the the Microsoft ecosystem and the Amazon ecosystem just as there's been tremendous benefits from from uh, Boeing over the years in building the the world's most important aerospace uh, industry the you know, there's, there's trade-offs. If you want well-funded schools and well-funded universities and you want to provide uh, very expensive health care at, at, for free to lots of people, uh, it, it takes economic growth. And I lived in Paris for a period of time working and just travel around Western Europe other than Germany and you see societies in, in decline. 
severe decline. Uh, it takes a long time for a country to go broke, but they're, they're working hard at it in Italy and in France and in Portugal and in Spain. And my daughter went to school in Paris for a year, and I was worried that she wouldn't want to come back uh, because she was a, a French major. Thank God the University of Washington is innovative and has this sales program that she got into and got then a job out of school because I didn't know what the heck she was going to do with a French degree other than, you know, be able to speak uh, French. But it was really interesting after about four or five months, and it was a fantastic life experience for her. But I said, hey, do you think you'll want to stay here? And she said, oh, no way. No chance. She goes, the, the young people are so pessimistic about their futures because there's so little opportunity that there's no way I would want to live in a society like that. And that's in Paris. Uh, you move out to, and, that, and there's only about eight arrondissements in, in Paris that are thriving. You move to the other nine and they are, there's a lot of despair. You move outside of the Paris area, uh, not something that I would, that I would want for my life. So I think it is a, it's a real trade-off in terms of what is growth worth. If we don't have more distribution of the benefits of growth, uh, we're going to have real big problems in the country, bigger than what we're seeing now. But if we don't have growth, the problems we have because of this enormous debt that our politicians have piled up, uh, the problems will be astoundingly difficult to overcome. Peggy? So um, when you say why growth, um, I am not a, necessarily an advocate for growth. We are happen to be, we are riding the tiger. And what you're asking us to do is dismount. And I'm not sure that there's actually a way to do that. Um, there are forces at work here, the place we are, it's natural beauty, it's a great place to live. It has great diversity, great food, great music, great people. People are going a great, sort of a great climate. Um, <laughs> people want to come here and live, and I don't think we can change those those variables. The thing I think we need to do with the growth is it's creating great wealth. And the important thing when cities or places create great wealth is they need to be able to seize upon at least a fairly large percentage of it and reinvest it back into the people and the institutions of the place. And that's where we are right now. We have to figure out how to grasp some of the wealth and get it reinvested, not at Harvard, not in you know India, but back here in Seattle because we need to solve our problems. We need to build a really great city. It's actually our opportunity. We see, I see growth as our opportunity to prove that we can seize this moment and do something really fabulous. And so that's what I would urge everyone. That is optimism, that you can actually seize the moment. And that's what has been about, what Seattle's been about for a very long time, has been this, you know, we've had crash and burn cycles, but we've always come back and been optimistic. And uh, that's based on our education system and on the type of people, the dreamers, and the innovators and the crazy people who move here because we are always thinking, yeah, we could solve this problem. We could do something really cool. So my challenge to the community and my challenge to all those people out there who have made the money is, come on, folks, we got to reinvest it back in our place. You owe it to everyone out here to do that. So that's my job. If I could append my answer because I, is it Thomas? 
I mean, you ask a very important but difficult question, and it's a question, again, that I've grappled with over the years in terms of, I, yeah, I think policymakers who focus on growth for growth's sake, that is very wrong-headed. But, you know, how do we channel this growth and how do we work to make, you know, it improve our quality of life, not de degrade our quality of life, is a re really tricky question. And I can tell you, the Port of Seattle, we view ourselves not only as a gateway, not only as the economic engine for the region, we view ourselves as the gateway, the economic engine for the entire state. So what we've been doing over the years, working with our sister ports across the state, you look at Moses Lake. They have cheap property. They have cheap power. It's great for manufacturing plants. So the BMW joint venture that produces carbon fiber that located in Moses Lake, we've been working with the Port of Moses Lake to really market Moses Lake and get manufacturing sited in Moses Lake because we know they'll export out of the Port of Seattle. So it benefits both ports. Or for example, we have two cruise terminals that every summer some 200 sailings leave out of the Port of Seattle up to Alaska. That business brings in half a billion dollars into our local economy each year. Well, how do we work with Walla Walla? How do we work with Winthrop to make sure that people going on cruises up to Alaska stay a while in Washington State and go out to Walla Walla and you know, to the wine country and spend money there, or go up to Winthrop and spend money there? I mean, we are trying to think statewide, region-wide, and how can this growth that we're grappling with benefit the entire region? And now we are nearing the end of our program. Uh, I'd like to give each of you a chance to talk about the future of Seattle. So maybe five years down the road, 10 years down the road, what, what are your thoughts on the future of Seattle as it's growing uh, rapidly and, and changing dramatically at the same time? Uh, let's start with John Connors. You know, I think probably the, the biggest uh, impact that, that we'll see as citizens is that Seattle gets, the, the Puget Sound region is recognized as a world-leading region. And instead of being just a, on the U.S. map, uh, it'll be on the world map. And the, I think we probably can't really even begin to forecast the impact that Amazon, the Amazon ecosystem is going to have, not just as a, as a company, but what's going to come out of Amazon because of the nature of the, the people they hire, how they run the place, and the, 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 the multiple industries that the skill sets inside of Amazon are working on, whether it's retail, whether it's technology. So the, the Amazon effect, I think, will be similar to the effect that Microsoft had. And then I would hope that, secondly, uh, that this is a, a region that's looked at as having done what, what Maggie describes. And the, the, the biggest area that I think is, is critical for us as citizens, and it can't just, it isn't just wealthy people, it's every single citizen, our, our K-12 system isn't, isn't innovative. We have highly innovative universities in this country, the best in the world, because they compete. But for in our public K-12 system, it's really difficult to find any innovation because they haven't been forced to innovate. And the losers are the kids. And we, we really are, are at risk of, of having a situation where we simply don't have enough young people that have the skills to do the jobs that this area will produce. 
and the best people from all over the world will move here to take those jobs supplanting the kids that are in our, our K-12 system. So probably the single biggest challenge, the, the private sector is going to thrive here, and I do think more and more of it will move out to other regions. Tacoma will very likely uh, be a, a major beneficiary of investment and, and, and reinvention because this area will just get too expensive. It's, the, it's what you see in, in, in most major areas. The most important thing is how do we radically improve the education system in K-12 so that there's the kids that come out have the skills to do jobs that are meaningful and fulfilling and it doesn't have to be a high-tech job. It doesn't, even have to, it doesn't even mean you necessarily go to college. You may go to a vocational school, but you find meaning through work because you're, you're reaching your potential. And that's the biggest challenge I think we have is, is innovation in K-12 and innovation in vocational training. And no one is in Fortson Brown versus the Board of Education, 1954, in these schools here. Well, I would echo John again in talking about education. I mean, I think it's very important going forward that we main preserve and protect and grow our middle class job space. And that, in my opinion, requires a diverse economy. And you look at manufacturing, manufacturing is not dead. It's grown eightfold in the last few decades. What has happened is manufacturing has gone high tech, so it supports a much smaller job space. But those jobs, I mean, you look at the harbor in Seattle, um, a harbor pilot, a welder, a crane operator can all make six-figure salaries. And what I think has the education sector has done wrong over the last couple decades is de-emphasize vocational training. They've made it less sexy. I mean, to succeed, no, you have to go get a four-year college degree. Well, there's a great story, the head of Nichols Brothers uh, Shipbuilding on Whidbey Island, um, he was dyslexic in high school, and so he didn't do well in class, but he got, he really took to shop class, and now he, he's founded, he's grown a multi-million dollar business and become very successful with a big job space. And um, we need to and add to that, you look at Boeing machinists, you look at you know, workers at Vigor Shipyards, those workers are aging out. And we don't have the trained people to replace those workers. And again, they're good paying jobs. I mean, I mean the average maritime job in the King County region pays $10,000 more a year than the general average. So we need to maintain a strong middle class jobs base. And to do that, I think we, in the next couple decades, we really need to focus hard on training and education. So in five years, I hope to be cutting the ribbon on the new waterfront park. So we'll have 26 blocks of green, gorgeous uh, promenade and park space full of music and great food and a place where people can mix from all walks of life and a family can come down and not have to spend any money and have a wonderful, gorgeous day. And I hope, you know, if Bertha finishes her work, that we can have that done by 2021, early 2022. And I think with the remaking of that, I think we actually remake this city. It will change everyone's attitude. It opens us up, that it creates this connection 
that was always there with big nature. This is one of the most beautiful places in the world, and we cut ourselves off from it when we're downtown working. We want everyone who works in a downtown high-rise to be able to walk down to the water and have that experience. So part of what we have to do is identify what it is that's important about Seattle and hang on to it, foster it, steward it, invest in it. And that's the important thing, and we also need to create leadership because I think, in, I think all of us understand today in the United States what we're missing is great leadership at this point. So that's my hope, and that's what I'm working on. All right, please join me in thanking the panel members for sharing their perspectives today. And I want to thank all of you, not just for being here, but for, for having your voice be heard. Uh, as Maggie says, it's important uh, that we let people know what we want to hang on to, and we let people know what we want to change. And we have a, a constructive dialogue about the future of Seattle and work together, whether it's privately or publicly, or uh, a mix, a, a partnership between the private and public sectors. Uh, I w again, let's thank the UW's Burke Center for Entrepreneurship for organizing this event. So I encourage all of you to continue with the constructive dialogue and share your thoughts uh, with each other. And uh, I also encourage you to tune in next week to the Seattle Growth Podcast. <laughs> Uh, I sat down with uh, the leaders of our city, uh, the leader of our city, uh, the mayor, Ed Murray, and I also sat down with uh, one of the members of Governor Jay Inslee's executive cabinet, uh, the director of this Washington State Department of Commerce, Brian Bonlander. So it's, it'll be fascinating for you to hear uh, what I heard, uh, which is their vision for the city and for the state as we continue to grow. So thank you all uh, for coming, and be good to each other, and be good to the city of Seattle and the region as a whole. Thank you. Thank you.